I want you to go with me to 1 John. Uh, now, we're going to do a series beginning today that will go through the springtime, um, um, March and April, May, on the love of God. And uh, we're going to begin it here in a section, and in, in fact, in a, in a chapter that's just so good in helping us understand what the love of God is all about. So if you go to 1 John 4, that's where we're going to hang out today. If you're reading ahead, and this is going to be a little bit of a challenge for all of us, but if you're reading ahead, uh, next week we'll be in Ephesians 2. We're going to kind of pick and choose where we're going, but next week we'll be in Ephesians 2, and uh, we'll talk about the love of God from there. Now, there's a raging debate. I have read uh, this week in Psychology Today. I've read this week in... Uh, read some of the preamble stuff to um, um, eHarmony.com, okay? Do you believe in love at first sight? That's interesting. Guys, this would be a good time to nod your head yes, whether you believe in that or not. Uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting little phenomenon. There's a little bit of a debate over whether or not people believe it or believe in it, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I read one person who um, uh, walked by a really attractive girl and the guy said to her, do you believe in love at first sight or do I need to come by here again? Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I wonder sometimes if it's not love, love at first sight, but it's really just kind of attraction, or it might be even heartburn. You know, I, I'm not really sure, but a lot of people believe it. Um, Rhonda's not here yet, is she, Jim? Okay, I can get away with this, all right. Um, our situation was not love at first sight, and you'll have to ask her about it. I think she'll tell the truth, but it was not love at first sight. It was... It was um, it was kind of interesting. We knew each other for six months or so before we dated. And um, uh, you just have to kind of, many of you have probably heard some of that story. I will tell you this. Um, it really kind of was, for me at least, love at first sound. When I heard her sing, it was all over, Hubert, you know, just all over. And, um, and those of you who have heard her sing can understand that. But um, it's interesting, uh, filmmakers love talking about this particular issue and uh, some happily married couples, maybe some in this room, affirm it was true for them, but relationships usually don't work out that way. Usually don't work the love at first sight thing. Um, uh, far more common is for one person to be kind of attracted to another and begin kind of a courtship uh, process to convince the other. One person loves first and the other person comes to love later. Now, what we're going to talk about today and really in this whole series is this sequencing of love like that where it begins in one place and it goes toward another one and then the other kind of catches up to that idea. And certainly uh, that's true in some romantic love, but the Bible is not writing here necessarily in this section about romantic love that men and women have for each other. Rather, John is explaining our relationship with God. 
We're going to, our memory verse for this section, okay, so it's going to be in our lesson today, so we'll keep coming back to it week after week, is verse 19 that we'll end on today, and uh, it, it's very simple to memorize. We love because he first loved us. And by the way, with him, it was love at first sight with you. He knew you before you were born and loved you then. Okay, so we're going to talk about this sequencing of love that begins with God and informs our kind of love. We don't need to attract God's attention and convince him to love us. He's loved us from the beginning, um, which is way more astonishing than some kind of uh, romantic love at first sight. Now, by the way, don't think me being a Scrooge here at this point or being some kind of a cynic. Um, I'm just wanting to talk about this in more specific holy terms uh, with, with the Lord's love to us. Now, let's talk a little bit about John's letters, and we'll, I'll just give you a minute or two in this. We've got um, the three letters of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, that come in this section of the Bible, which is just a couple of pages where Revelation begins at the end of our Bibles. Um, we think that he wrote these letters um, really after A.D. 90, so late in the first century, uh, because he was likely the last, tradition will tell us, he's likely the last of the disciples that were still living. He may have been, even though he lived a really difficult life in a lot of ways, um, had his own set of problems and uh, persecutions, he likely will be, at least tradition tells us, that he was uh, the only one of the 12 disciples who didn't die some kind of a violent death. He died of old age. Uh, by the time he's writing these letters, tradition tells us that he was in Ephesus. Some of you in this room have been to Ephesus and have told me about that. It's a large, prosperous city on the western part of what is now Turkey. That's where uh, John was hanging out in those days. He began to be in, involved in the Ephesian church that we'll read Paul's advice to next week in Ephesians 2. His pastor, this is interesting to me, his pastor was probably Timothy. I find that intriguing. A young guy pastoring a church, and on the back row is a really, really old guy who knows more than Timothy will ever know. Uh, it's a really interesting setup, isn't it? Uh, that romantically goes through my head occasionally when I think about the Ephesian church. There were rivals in the area who uh, tried to contradict his teaching, despite the fact that he had impeccable credentials. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, among the credentials is he was one of the original 12 disciples. We'll talk about some other credentials he had, but isn't it interesting that, that some who were in that neighborhood would try to take even John on? So John's letters, like we'll see today, give some evidence of this antagonism that he had between himself and, and some other local teachers that he denounced as being false teachers. It's interesting here, the six churches of the book of Revelation um, are all with 120 miles or so of Ephesus. So um, when, when John in the book of Revelation talks to them, he's talking about churches he has some knowledge of. Um, he's seen probably by some as being out of touch because he's elderly. And John um, uh, is just, 
as an author of these books, he repeatedly returns to the unchanging, ever-loving, always faithful God as the model for relationships within the church and within life. And yet sometimes he's kind of dismissed as being a doting old man. Now, with that as a backdrop, let's study here a little bit from chapter four. We're gonna begin verse seven. Steve, would you mind to read seven down through 12? First John four, seven through 12. Okay, you got a couple of pages you got to turn there. Can you handle that? All right. Okay. No, I don't. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Beautiful, isn't it? What's the first word or the first couple of words in your translation in verse 7? Beloved. beloved. I really love that word, beloved. That's the way mine is. Uh, if you're reading from the NIV, it may say, dear friends. Is that what it says? Anybody else got something else? Okay. There, it's clear here that John is not afraid, even as an elderly man, he's not afraid to hang his heart out there a little bit. He it clearly loves these people to whom he's writing. Um, and, and he's going to address them in like terms. Now, the question that I wanted us to start out with today is, as you read this, or as we try to understand it, is it true? What do you think? Probably not. And... And I've had to struggle with this over the years of my adult life as I've taught this stuff, especially as I've taught this particular book, thinking through, okay, can people really be loving who are not believers in Jesus? And the truth is that you and I have met people who are very loving, who don't kind of see things your way. Um, now, we're going to make a case here for, um, for, for that particular issue, but but I just want you to see that as John begins here in verse 7, that's not really the point. The point is actually the other way around. It's not the idea that uh, everyone who loves also loves God. It's the other way around. We know that that, that particular statement is, is not true. But we also know those who truly love, who don't know God, interestingly, so what he must be dealing with here is this contradiction in the life of someone who claims to know God yet is not loving. He's going to really take, in all of his books, he's gonna, in all of these letters, he's going to take on the thought that if you claim to know Jesus and yet you have a lack of love, that's a contradiction or it's counterindictive. Indicative. 
of your relationship with him or the relationship that you say that you have. All right? Now look at verse 8. The one who loves does not... Um, the one who does not love does not know God. So that's what we're kind of talking about here. For God is love. Now, it's interesting here. Um, by the way, uh, if, you, if you chose to, to count it up, literally in just the several verses that we'll be studying today, the word love occurs 24 times. A lot. Every verse has the word love in it just about. And it's several times. 24 times I think I counted in just the passage that we're studying today, from 7 down to 19. It must matter. And what this verse, what verse 8 is going to tell us, uh, what's going to be presented to us as, is um, it's kind of a litmus test. It's kind of a self-examination. It's a call for self-examination of the love in my life. And so he, he's going to back that up with this kind of startling claim. You'll not hear this in any other religion. You'll not hear this in any other religion. You will hear um, a Muslim talk about God as being merciful sometimes. But, and you will hear other religions talk about God as being loving. But you won't hear in any other system but Christianity the thought that God actually is love. Not that merely he does love, but that he is love. And there's all kinds of implications of that that John is gonna kind of help us with today. Um, uh, not just that God is loving, like other religions would say, but that he is love. Now, in verse nine, he's gonna draw a direct connection and I'm going to put up a, a, a one word and I'm going to talk about another one. So just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to warn you about that. He's going to make a direct correlation between Jesus' death and God's love, okay? But he's really going to talk about Jesus' life in the context of his death, okay? He's going to talk about there's this direct connection between Jesus' death and God's love. Most of us, okay, most of us, have memorized in Sunday school or Bible school or something in the past, we have memorized uh, the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay. Now, what you need to recognize is that these are John's words, but they're also in red. So John was the one to record them as said by Jesus. All right? These are John's words, and they're his words. And so he's got that as a context or as a backdrop when he says something like he's saying here in, in uh, verse 9. This thought that, that God's love and his death are um, kind of inexorably tied. Now, how do I know that God loves me? What about all the pain in my life? We've talked about that some this morning. Several of us are going through some kind of thing. Perhaps John's opponents are trying to explain the apparent mismatch of continued suffering with what John has been teaching about God's love. I bet they are. Well, wait a minute. If God's so loving, then why are you guys going through this? 
We can deduce from this letter that the false teachers are saying that the way to salvation is through some kind of private um, uh, secret knowledge to be members in a fellowship of some kind of spiritual elite. And so John's answer to that is to pull the reader, to pull you and me back to the fact of history that we see in the verse before us. How do we know that God loves us? Because he sent his one and only son on a mission to save the world. Look at verse 10. There's a direct connection, John's gonna say, between God's love and Jesus' death. He's very interested in that thought. Now, according to verse 10, God didn't love you and me because we were necessarily lovable. Am I, am I bursting your little balloon? Sorry. Now, by the way, I can't think of anybody in this room that's not really lovable, okay? You're all really lovable to me, but I think that was, that's, most of that's happened since you met Jesus, okay? I'm sorry. God didn't love you because you were just so cute and lovable. Sorry, Steve. I, I think you're cute anyway, but, and Cindy really does. God didn't love you because you were lovable. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Rhonda and I have kind of this thing we talk about quite a bit because she is so lovable and I'm so not. Amen. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know us both very well, Sherman. Okay, all right. That wasn't a place for an amen, but go ahead. Okay, we're good. Now, let's, let's make him do this. Uh, Steve, hand him the mic. I want you to go to Romans 5, because it's going to illustrate this. Would you mind to do that? Romans 5, either you or Andy. You can, you can uh, deputize Andy if you want to. I want us to read Romans 5, 8 and Romans 5, 10. It's going to illustrate this idea. Romans 5, Romans 5, 8 and Romans 5, 10. They're both kind of written there uh, on, your, on your outline. Well, just a minute, Steve. I don't have my glasses, and they tried to give me a small Bible. And <laughs> Good luck, pal. Okay. Oh, okay. You're going to just leave, okay? okay Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to go on to 10? Yes, sir. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The Bible is telling us here, and, and, and Paul and John are consistent in their teaching, that the reason God loved us this much, enough to send his son to the cross. See, the cross was not God's response to our overtures of love to him. Oh, by no means. In fact, in verse eight that uh, Sherman just read from Romans five, it's kind of this idea that God loved us. He demonstrated his love for us in this, it says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was no overture of love. There was, no, there was nothing special about me that caused Jesus to go to the cross for me. He did it prior to all of that. 
By the way, in this Lenten season, that thought ought to kind of pervade your mind occasionally. Why would Jesus go to the cross for me? It, it's a great mystery, frankly. It's, it's uh, a, a profound paradox. He didn't go to the cross for me because I was so lovely and lovable. He went to the cross because God is love. And love changes everything. Can I tell you that? Love changes everything. It certainly does here. Look at verse 11. There's a truth here that we're going to talk about uh, throughout this passage. How do we apply this great truth? Well, he basically says, if he loved you that much, how can you not love each other? And it's one of these great, uh, beautiful uh, John themes in every book that he writes. Okay, now I want somebody, if you would, um, let's pass it pass it around a little bit. We want to. Actually, Andy, would you mind reading? You're going to go to John 1.18 in just a minute. John 1.18. And I'm going to read 2.15 before we get to verse, uh, verse 12. Okay? I'm going to go to 1 John 2.15, just a page back. Here's what it says. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the idea of how can we be sure, crystal clear sure, that God exists. And John is going to say here in verse 12 that Steve read a little bit ago and that I'll reread now. He, John is going to say that no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How do we know? How can we be sure, John says? He's, he's going to have a, a common theme through this whole section. How do we know that God exists? Now, and he uses this idea, which is common in John's writing, uh, also in his gospel, in 118, that no one has ever really seen God. So how do you know that he really exists? Read 118 from uh, the gospel of John, Andy, okay? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has seen God at any time, but God, the one and only, the Son of God, the one and only, has made him known. He's shown him. In one translation, it says he has illustrated him. Now, here's the question. How can we be sure of a God that we can't see? How can we be sure that he actually exists? John is going to answer that question in terms of love and your lifestyle of love. Our love to others is the best evidence, he's going to say, for the existence of God. I'm going to say this. Is God's love alive in you? That's a question only you can answer and maybe those who are closest around you. Is God's love alive in you? Then to them, others with whom you are loving, to them, he is alive in you. 
if you are not loving in your relationships with other people, uh, John is going to say, regardless of what you claim and how good your, your um, um, theology is, he's going to say, is his love alive in you? If it's not, then to them, God is not alive. That's incredible to me to think about. That you could be proof or not of God's existence in the way you live your life, in the way I live my life. Now, can we go to the next little section and we'll, we'll read that. Um, um, in fact, I'll, I'll pick it up right here, verse, verse 13. That's where we're gonna start. Here we go. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, capital S. We have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is his son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know that we believe the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love, here's our memory verse, we love because he first loved us. Now, we, uh, John's going to begin in this section by talking about the fact that, that the answer for our doubts, okay, as whether or not you are his, or whether or not uh, you possess Christ and he possesses you. The answer to our doubts, he's going to say, is, is the presence of and the work of his spirit in your life. That's capital S, spirit. How does that work out? How does that play out? Well, I'm just going to be um, um, tell you from personal experience. When I'm walking a way that I'm not supposed to way, walk, or when I'm not walking a way that he's told me to walk, okay, when... when that voice in my heart says, you know, in fact, this comes from the book of Isaiah, that's not the way to walk. Don't walk that way, walk this way. When that voice tells me, you know what, there's something you're involved in that you, you need to cut out, or there's something that you need to get involved in, that kind of conviction either way, that's the Holy Spirit's voice in my life. And the presence of that voice doesn't tell me that I'm not his. In fact, it tells me that I am. His work inside me, his voice inside me tells me that I'm his child, I'm his son. I put the, the reference to Revelation 3.20. That's a, another great memory verse for another day, but um, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers my voice and comes in, I will open the door, I will come in and, and dine with him and he with me. It's kind of that that this wonderful, uh, maybe you've seen Warner Solomon's painting of Jesus standing at the door of someone's heart. I always think of that when I hear that verse. God desires a, an intimate relationship with you is the idea, but what you and I've got to catch here is that we didn't knock on his door, he knocked on ours. He comes in and shows us how to love. And he'll say, uh, 
I'll help you with this in this project of your life. If you'll take a look at Jesus' life, I'll show you how to love because he really did it well. And the Holy Spirit says, let me show you how to love like he did. That's the Holy Spirit's work in you. So one of the things that's an antidote to doubt, uh, and by the way, I, I told you last week that um, uh, anytime I lead someone to Christ, I often ask them within the first 24 hours to read 1 John, just those five chapters, because it's so reassuring. It helps me, you know, the, the devil is immediately, by the way, when you, when you accepted Christ, maybe you remember this, but immediately when you accept Christ, the devil's gonna come behind whoever helped you find him and the devil's gonna come behind and say, you know, nothing really happened to you, cut it out. So 1 John is such an antidote to that. It helps me with those doubts. And one of the things that helps me most with those doubts is upon receiving his gift of salvation, I also received the gift of the Holy Spirit and his work within me. Just reminds me moment by moment, his voice, that I'm his. So the answer for our doubts is God's spirit. And John's gonna go on in verse 13. I think this is interesting and he's in a unique position in his day to say this. We have seen, and by the way, he's selectively using the word we because he really means me. I have seen, he said, and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, I want you to take your Bible, keep, keep your finger there, but I want you to go back left to the Gospel of John, John's Gospel. He knows this, and I want you to go to John 19. This is during the time Jesus is on the cross, okay? During the time that Jesus is on the cross, I want to go to verse 25. And I'm going to pick it up in the middle of verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Isn't it interesting? John doesn't name himself, but he names himself. He loves this title for himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Could it be, I think it probably was, that John may have been the only one standing near the cross during the crucifixion? Did he see this? Did he understand it? You know what? He was an eyewitness to it. Now, so if you'll look back in verse 14 and 1 John 4, the idea here is that uh, John is saying, you know what? I know about this stuff because I've seen it. He himself had eyewitness proof Unique in his day. Look at the first three verses of this little letter, first, first John. What was from the beginning and what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes and what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of God. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, without going any farther, basically what John is saying there, uh, and what I'm referencing from back in John 19, is he was there. He, he literally says, I touched him. I handled him. 
unique in his day as an eyewitness is John. And so he's going to say, I've got eyewitness proof that these things are true. And then in verse 15 and 16, he's going to go on to describe that our relationship with God, and he's going to say that our relationship with God is going to directly affect our relationship with other people. And he's going to say that our relationship with God grows deeper as I practice loving you. Now, that's really interesting to me, that I get to know God better as I practice loving you. God will say, in my prayer time, I could say, God, tell me how to love you today. And he'll say, love Joe. God, tell me how to love you better today. He'll you know, say, love Ellie. And I'll say, can I love Joe instead? I love you, Ellie. I really do, by the way. Isn't it interesting? If you want to demonstrate your love to God, you demonstrate it by loving somebody else with skin on. That's the proof. That's the litmus test. Now, I, I want to go to verse 17. But by the way, before we get from 15 and 16, there's three tests that are kind of tied together there, or three things that are kind of tied together. He says, as he begins, he talks about confessing Jesus as Lord. And then he talks about that other evidence of God's spirit work inside you. And then he's going to talk about how this unity factor of love, how it kind of ties this all together. And so in verse 17, he's going to begin to talk about this issue of fear. And the fear that he's talking about is fear of judgment. You ever had that? There's a person in my life who for much of his life had bad dreams every night. And it was, most of it was motivated by negative preaching he heard over the years. Literally, afraid to die. Even though this is a good guy who loves Jesus. Is that your story or do you know anybody like that? Isn't it interesting that somehow we would sit in the pews of churches and come out of it thinking, I've got to be afraid to face God. Now, I need to have a healthy respect and fear for that in, in a godly sense. But the truth that, that John is going after here is the idea that how can I... How can I approach the end of my life? How can I approach the end uh, in judgment at the end of time? It's going to be the same answer here. It will be whether or not I've answered the love question. Uh, in verse 17, let me just fill in your blanks. The love question will mean the difference between fear and faith. So what I'm trying to hammer at here, and you may not like this, but I think I'm right. When you get there, at the end of your life, you know, there won't be the, I don't think the way all heaven jokes begin, you know, with a guy shows up at, at the gate and St. Peter meets him there and asks him three questions. Yeah, I, I don't think that's what's gonna happen. I do believe the Lord will ask you at least one question. Did you love? By the way, that sobers me incredibly. Did you love? Do you know my son? And by the way, I don't know that you'll have to answer that question. Do you know my son? I think the son will say, 
Father, he's with me. But I believe he's going to ask us, did you love? I don't think, don't tell my theologian friends this, I don't think he's going to ask you what infralapsarianism is. I don't think it'll be on the test. You good with that? Okay, all right. Or even superlapsarianism. I don't think you'll have to answer. I don't even know what those things are. I don't really care. But I do think he's going to ask, did you love? And by the way, as, as any good lawyer knows, he's not going to ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer for. <laughs> did you love? That's the difference between fear and faith. And for John, verse 18, the opposite of love is not hate. Not necessarily hate for John. The opposite of love is fear. I don't have to live fearfully if I love. If the Lord is at work inside me, causing me to love. And in verse 19, I just want to remind you that you and I are not programmed to love. We're programmed for selfishness. So he gives us this perfect summary of life in Christ. And what's really, really important here, and I want us to memorize it with the reference. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Would you say it with me? 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Pretty easy, but pretty profound. What a perfect summary. True love begins with him, and with you, for you, it was love at first sight, even before you loved him back. Knowing God means knowing love, and loving God means loving others. I want to remind you of a profound truth. Love changes everything. It makes all the difference. So would you walk through today, maybe asking yourself the question, did I love? Do I love? I think it's all important. We love because he first loved us. We'll be in Ephesians 2 next week and we'll talk more about this issue of the love of God for you and in you.